Hey there, and welcome to Time for Chai, the podcast series where leaders in manufacturing, commodities, risk, supply chain management, and digital technology come to share truly actionable insight based on real-world experiences. I'm your host, Jake Jacobs, Head of Growth at Chai. Hello, welcome, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. It's great to see so many folk logged in. Glenn, welcome, Gregory, great to have you join us. Wayne, David, Robert, this is fantastic. We've got a really, really good turnout today. There's a you know a few familiar names. There's also loads of people that uh, I know haven't joined these sessions before, so it's really, really pleasing. With that, we'll begin. So the agenda today, the overarching theme that we're looking to to really shed some light on is have the metals markets got ahead of events. And through this lens, we're going to be looking at aluminium, copper ferrous metals, and then taking a dive into a few specific themes, such as electric metals and green rebuilding, quite an on-vogue topic right now. And we'll also be looking at ABC anywhere but China. We'll finish up with a, slight, uh, a segment on the LME and a Q&A, uh, time permitting. So with that, I'm really, really pleased today to be joined by three markets experts in Robin Barr, Mike McGlone, and Chris Evans. Now, these three don't really need an introduction. But I also do think it's worth highlighting just how how you know uh, deep their expertise is, and just how lucky we are that they've all been on time to join us today. So Robin, starting with Robin, he's worked as a metals analyst for over 30 years in several different corporate and investment banks in London. Most recently, Socgen, where he was head of metals research. Robin holds an honours degree in geology and masters, and a masters in mineral exploration. His market perspective is sought by a variety of practitioners and stakeholders in the industries tied to the metals market. If you aren't already, I would strongly encourage you to follow his daily updates and weekly reports, which can be found at rbmc.world, and to follow him on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Mike McGlone is a senior commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike joined Bloomberg in 2016 with over 25 years of futures and commodity trading and investing experience beginning at the Chicago Board of Trade. Prior to joining Bloomberg, he was head of US research at ETF Securities, and prior to that, headed the commodity business at S&P Indices. He has an MBA from DePaul University in Chicago and a Bachelor's of Science and Arts degree from Illinois State University. He's also a CFA charter holder and has earned a financial risk manager designation. Mike is also very active on both Twitter and LinkedIn, so I'd strongly encourage you to follow him and connect with him for his up upstate commentary and analysis. Last but by no means least, my colleague and friend Chris, who is Chai's Director of Strategy and resident metals expert. Chris has more than 20 years of experience in commodities markets spanning media, exchanges and industry. After serving as non-ferrous editor of Metal Bulletin, Chris joined the LME, becoming head of business development with responsibility for new product launches and data sales. Subsequently, he worked in Switzerland for Rusal Marketing, the sales and hedging division of the world's number two aluminium producer as project director for price benchmarking. He's a graduate of Oxford University, and I think has just a very interesting perspective of the markets, given that he's worked in a few different roles across different industries. On a personal note, Chris is an excellent colleague, who I've always found to be incredibly knowledgeable, patient, and, uh, and very, very helpful. I have to say that I feel quite lucky um, at Chai that our team consists of people just like Chris, who are true experts in their field, but also very down to earth and approachable people. Anyway, with that, gentlemen, welcome. Please do join me. 
Mike, Robin, and Chris, over to you. Great, well, thanks so much, Jake. Thanks for that uh, lovely introduction. Uh, I think there are probably a few people on the webinar that uh, might uh, dispute uh, your, your description of, of me as being particularly patient, but uh, never mind. Uh, let's uh, let's get on with the uh, discussion without further ado. So obviously uh, we've seen um, the, the worst, the beginnings of the worst recession for 300 years apparently. So uh, it's not entirely surprising that, uh, that the prices uh, for uh, commodities, for, for industrial metals, have declined. But um, are we surprised at the uh, the, the, the speed of the uh, recovery today, Robin? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Chris. First of all, thanks to Chai for, for having me, uh, allowing me to, to share my thoughts. If I'm honest, I would say yes, I've, I have been surprised by how rapid industrial commodities, metals specifically, have rebounded. You know, truly a V-shaped recovery when we look at uh, copper prices in particular. We can look at this uh, at several levels, you know, to keep it pretty simple, we could say it's all to do with the macro and copper being the most macro driven metal. It makes sense that it's pretty much kept lockstep with the S&P. So if you look back at um, where we bottomed out, so March 23rd, both uh, equity indices and base metals made their lows. Since then, to the end of last week, the S&P was up 40% from that March low. Copper was up 40%. So pretty much kept uh, in lockstep with each other. So truly a macro-driven um, event. I think a lot of macro investors have sought to uh, use copper to express their view, bullish or bearish on the macro outlook. You know, the alphabet soup ranging from a V-shape, U-shape. W and so on. They've used copper uh, and other metals as a hedge against the weakening US dollar, and that looks to be gathering momentum. And finally, investors have used uh, copper in particular to hedge against uh, inflation. And certainly that's one of the themes I think running through markets is this reflation uh, expectation that will uh, will lift equity markets, precious metals, and industrial metals, and specifically copper. But I think the argument's a lot more nuanced than that. And this is where we can bring in the supply and demand fundamentals. No doubt, demand has rebounded spectacularly in China. No doubt about it. You look at the um, the rebound in economic activity, the PMIs, a good evidence, but also demand for copper in particular. June imports were up uh, 50%, uh, sorry, 15% month on month in June to almost 700,000 tonnes. That beat the previous monthly record. Imports for the first half of this year are almost 3 million tonnes, so up 25% year on year, and on track to beat the last record, which was 2008, uh, where we saw uh, refined imports reaching 5.3 million tonnes. So I think that's good evidence of this demand um, bounce back. What would worry me going forward is that if China's 50% of global copper consumption, what about the other 50%? And that's where those economies truly are in recession. 
the North American region, Europe, and Asia. And so that would be a worry longer term. Let, let, let's bring Mike in at this point. So the, the, the Bloomberg House view of uh, economic recovery or the economic situation for the year, I guess IMF is, is saying global growth or, or the global economy is going to be 5% thereabouts uh, lower for the year. Where, where, does, where does Bloomberg uh, stand on that? And uh, what, uh, what do you think that, that, that implies for metal pricing? Well, the, the Bloomberg house view, I don't remember exactly, but they were looking for numbers similar to that. And my key point is my experience in the last five, 10 years with any type of estimates, certainly with China, is um, it's the revisions that matter and revisions have all been negative, virtually guaranteed. So I think the market's way too optimistic about a view for global rebound in economic activity and for demand from China. And that theme has helped um, me well, certainly this year when the market was optimistic in um, at the end of the year and beginning of this year for copper and economic rebounds. So my bearish bias remains bearish in copper. And particularly with the markets already having bounced, as Robin mentioned, in such a significant way with the stock market. So I view, I'm preparing my outlook right now for the end of the month or for the beginning of the month. And I view copper and silver as unlikely to sustain this outperformance, recent outperformance versus gold and gold to continue to take the metal. Key reasons are there's been some significant trends the last almost 10 years that need to shift, i.e. for copper to outperform, to continue to rally from here. You look at it technically, the market looks like it's just reached good resistance versus gold. Bond yields, typically U.S. bond yields need to rise. Stock market needs to continue to go up. GDP needs to improve. And some of the key trends for the last few years, certainly this year, need to shift, which I view as unlikely. I see bond yields declining. So if you look at copper versus silver, I'm sorry, it's gold versus silver, very high correlation with inverse of bond yields. And I view that market, let's look at gold silver right now around 80, is good level to be looking to buy gold versus sell, sell silver. If you look at the trend in the last 10 years, it's right at a good support. Now 120, which we reached, we, uh, reached in April, was way too expensive for gold versus silver. But now at these levels, risk reward, pure, pure value, I don't see silver sustaining much above 25. And even if it gets to 30, I think it's more likely gold will get to 3000. Here's a key reason. These industrial metals are dependent on one key thing, global economic rebound, which I think the market's too optimistic about, sustained rally in the stock market, and fiscal stimulus. It needs that fiscal stimulus. Our equity strategy gets that. But gold will outperform and continue to outperform on one key thing that's a virtual guarantee, unparalleled central bank monetary stimulus, which will continue, and we all know that. So I look at it, probability, risk reward, look to buy gold on dips. It's a little expensive here, short term, but big picture, we got a US election, it's gonna be contentious. In the short term, we'll probably get some dollar weakness. And that's the key theme you need historically for silver to outperform gold in the long term is US dollar weakness, trade weighted basis. With that, I can pass it on to whoever. Okay, well, that's a great, uh, great introduction. We're gonna to touch on all of those uh, things, a little bit more uh, details as we move through the hour. One metal you haven't mentioned uh, yet either is, is aluminum. So let's, uh, let's start there. And um, I guess, uh, uh, the, the recession uh, ten years ago, but the big story was the uh, the, uh, the lack of uh, um, supply discipline, the uh, the huge stocks that uh, built up. I, I wonder, uh, Mike, can you speak to uh, what we're seeing in the uh, supply of aluminium uh, this time around? Have have producers curtailed production uh, any, and what do you see happening next? I focus less on aluminium as, or aluminium, depending on where what part of the world you're in because I find it a little dicey and less easy to predict and analyze than copper. So I look at it on, on kind of the wayside more technically and trust some of my metal analysts at uh, Bloomberg and we remain bearish on aluminum prices, part, particularly because that's been the trend. 
and I would love to hear Robin or your views on the actual supply demand trends, but I, I view aluminum more likely to head towards 1300. And that's just basically what it's been doing for quite a while. The trend is down, 52 week moving, moving average is down. It needs something to shift and what's been making it go lower for the last who knows how many years. And that's the way I look at it, but I'll focus more on copper, more on the supply demand standpoint. So how about your thoughts there, Robin? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can be relatively positive on copper's supply demand, you know, demands bounce back, supply constraints, whether it's uh, mines closing because of lockdowns in South America, Central Africa, and so on. But I think the scrap side for copper has gone unnoticed. There's been some recent data from the study group suggesting that scrap supply losses due to lockdown, not being able to um, collect um, old and new scrap has resulted in the equivalent of half a million tons of refined copper being lost. And that's why I think the Chinese have seen those strong import numbers. So copper, very positive. Aluminum, I would take the opposite uh, tack. Fundamentals, very bearish. You know, we've not seen a demand bounce back because key sectors like autos, aerospace, packaging have been essentially decimated by COVID. On the supply side, relatively very limited um, production cuts because power costs are linked to the LME price. As LME price has fallen, those power inputs have fallen along with aluminar and uh, cost of carbon and so on. But I wouldn't be too bearish on Ali. A couple of reasons. One, the financing trade will continue to lock up substantial amounts of the metal. Cost of funding is very low and will continue to go low. So dollar-based funding will continue to remain attractive and we'll get more metal as the producers are reluctant to cut. That um, oversupply will be reflected in more financing deals, very attractive yields on a one-year cash and carry of at least 4 to 5%. So um, you compare that to almost zero on cash deposits. So very preferential yield there. Secondly, on the stocks, um, I guess, the LME re revealed so-called shadow stock figures for, mm -hmm. uh, for metal, but mm -hmm. not a one, but in an LME warehouse. That was a, a, a million tonnes on top of the 1.6 million tonnes. We're, we're still um, a long way from uh, where we were at the, the peak of the last uh, recession with, um, uh, I think, over 3 million uh, tonnes in, in the warehouse and many more uh, tonnes outside. Do you have a, 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 an estimate on how much tonnage is, is currently sitting outside the LME system? I would estimate, um, give or take, about 10 million tonnes is held off warrant where financing is cheaper, 10 cents per day per tonne compared to, say, 50 cents per tonne per day in an LME warehouse. So, uh, you know, you compare 10 against 50, you're going to hold that metal off um, LME. Also, those LME off warrant um, numbers don't include metal held by physical uh, traders, merchants, and so on. They're not obligated to report, uh, and therefore uh, a huge slug of that unwanted uh, 
material, 7 million tonnes or so, uh, is not going to be um, caught in the LME's uh, reporting um, scheme. But we know from speaking with what sort of effect have we seen on premiums so far? Have they uh, begin to begun to rise? Where has they haven't as yet. I think they're essentially flatlining, reflecting more the oversupply in the physical market. But clearly, you know, are we going to go back to the post-financial crisis where a lot of metal was tied up, queues built up? premiums as a result went up sky high. Things are different this time around because um, uh, the LME has instigated new warehouse reforms. Therefore, you don't, you won't get um, the queues built up to the extent that they were 10 years ago. So that's somewhat different. Irrespective of that, though, I think the financing attractiveness is just so potential or the potential there is so great that, you know, that's the only way to deal with this oversupply is to finance it, earn a return, and keep it away from the market. And that's a factor, I think, that could underpin, funnily enough, aluminum prices going forward, as they did 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, on to, on to Copper, back to, to Mike. He's looking a bit lonely there. Mike, just talk us through uh, what's uh, going been happening in uh, Latin America. How that sort of production has... Uh, has been um, stalled for now relative to, to total production. And do you see, when do you see it coming back on again? I focus a little bit less on that because to me, those nuances are what you expect in a, in a, in a normal market is these little volatility things, spurts or destructions, uh, dis disruptions in supply. And typically when you get a bounce from that, it usually enhances bear markets because it'll increase prices artificially when they really shouldn't be. So I look at the industrial metals as a sector. I watch the Bloomberg's industrial metals complex. And the key things I notice as far as correlations in the past are with the emerging markets index, uh, or i.e. the MSCI divided by the S&P 500. So how emerging markets doing relative to the S&P 500 and US bond yields. And both these indicators are decidedly negative, yet, and markets really bounce to levels that are, I view as very precarious. So Partly because of those disruptions in South America, I usually both view those as our opportunities for sellers in bear markets, i.e. in a bear market, you're supposed to be a responsive seller and at a certain level, you're supposed to buy in responsive buyer. These are levels I view as somewhat more favorable to responsive sellers. Now, a month or two from now, if we can sustain these levels, I might turn my tune. But we have some major significant things coming on in the next month. And I think the market's in a bit of that delusional stage where, as notably, the stock market which is the key thing for industrial metals. It's one of the highest correlations to the stock market is, is Bloomberg Industrial Metal Complex. So overall, I view the stock market as expensive and dicey. The little, the disruptions lately is artificially boosting prices, which typically enhance bear markets. And um, I won't make it, I won't sugarcoat it. I view most notably copper. Industrial metals is very vulnerable at these levels to some normal mean reversion in the stock market, which means going back to where it was a few months ago. In, in terms of the uh, the involvement of um, fund money in, in the markets, have you seen the big accumulation? Is it now starting to, uh, to, to, to drop off, given what we've just said about the, the, the bond markets and, and the equity valuations? That's a key problem with copper. I, look, I love to look at managed money net futures being from the trading pit. And you want to see people get really short in a bear market. That usually bottoms things. The problem is copper management, managed money long positions on the COMEX, which is more dicey on the LME, 
yeah, about the longest in two years, net long, managed money, net basically hedge fund. So I look at that as that's not a market I want to join. I view that as very vulnerable. All you need is a little, a little catalyst. And those guys hit their stops. And all they do is go back to normal, which means plenty of selling. So that's another additional way I view copper as very vulnerable. And remember, August is the new September in terms of volatility in markets. August starts next week. So I view copper as the first place you should hit uh, sell stops if we get a little pickup in stock market volatility, which is highly likely, and as we enter into the US election. Now that's shorter term. But remember, I view that this is a bounce in the bear market. Something needs to really shift to make me get bullish. And typically the best way to shift is what, is what crude oil did. You gotta get stupid cheap. And that didn't really shift the bear market, it just put in a bottom. So I view it also overlaid with the world's most significant commodity, I'm bearish crude oil for similar reasons. It's bounced up to good levels on dicey reasons, got a little bit oversold, and now it's back to what hap was happening before COVID, and that was unfavorable demand versus supply trends, which have they shifted? No, I suspect they're probably worse. And again, it's back to this optimism for a global recovery. I feel it's is a more realistic view that we should expect these upper revisions to be revised downward. So yeah, Robin, um, maybe you've plateaued a little bit for, for now with copper prices. Do you see a, a, a bump in, in the market coming up to allow them to, to continue the rising higher? Or uh, do, you, do you kind of share uh, Mike's view that um, we're, we're maybe uh, heading to certainly volatility, but uh, maybe it's it plateaued for a, a bit longer, maybe heading, heading lower? What we can be sure, I would say, without doubt, is continued volatility. You know, if Mike's right about stock market volatility because of the upcoming U.S. elections and other factors, then we're going to see that mirrored in uh, in the metals and particularly copper. I think there's a $500 COVID premium in the copper price. So if we were to take that out of current levels, we'd come back to, what, $6,000 or thereabouts, I, I see that as being an important level because we're not simply not going to get the funding for uh, new projects and to bring on new supply going forward. You know, there's, uh, I think, reasonable consensus that we're headed for sizable deficits in the mid-2020s. And we need to think as an industry about giving the go-ahead to, uh, to new uncommitted copper projects now. And if you look back over the last two years and you look back at um, some of the copper projects that have been given the go-ahead, most of those were given the go-ahead around $5,500, $6,000. So copper, if it's consistently trading below $6,000, you're not going to get any mining company pulling the trigger and giving the go-ahead on uh, funding for new projects that will be needed by 2025. Copper being a very green metal is going to gain substantially from uh, this green agenda that politicians seem to be following, EVs and so on. And copper's the, uh, the one to benefit, but you need the supply response at the same time today in order to basically balance markets by 2024 2025. So yes, copper is um, overvalued slightly, but I think the $6,000 level is a good support level going forward. Just one thing, Robin touched on, on the EV part. That's where I differentiate the metals from all other commodities. And in the big picture, next 10 years, 
from an investor standpoint, appreciation price standpoint, metals are to me the most attractive, i.e. there's just way too much supply coming in crude oil and demand's being reduced because of technology. I look to my left, I got an electric car. And all that needs metals. So I view, and also if you're an investor, metals are really easy, cheap to hold. So that to me is very important in the big picture, but we got to get through this bear market yet. And I haven't, I just got to have a good signal that we're over from the bear market. Remember, copper peaked in 2011. And you know, recently, I, I got to see that bear market. I just don't have the indications as we enter this global recession that it should be now. So that's just to follow up on that part. Yeah, it's, what, what, it's often forgotten that electric vehicles, they use a lot of uh, nickel and, and, and cobalt, but actually the wiring that they require uses a whole lot more uh, copper as well. So uh, definitely uh, one to watch. Before, we're we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a moment, but before we do, just to sort of finish off on uh, copper, uh, Robin, the, uh, you, you mentioned um, scrap, scrap collection, scrap into uh, China being a, uh, a, a factor in the, in, in the rally. The, the Chinese purchasing of uh, copper, has that been mainly for internal uh, usage? Um, or uh, will we see an increase in those purchases as the, the production in China starts to uh, export to, to the West again? My feeling is that the uh, the imports of scrap are essentially for two things one to feed the um, the production uh, of copper so uh, smelters refiners would want to use a certain percentage of scrap along with concentrates to produce uh, the end um, the end product and on the demand side we know that fabricators and other semi manufacturers, also use scrap as an input as well. And, you know, I think the loss of around half a million tons of copper equivalent feeds into the narrative of a very strong picture for copper within China. Now, going forward, as I've said earlier, what worries me is that the other 50% of copper consumption outside of China doesn't look um, that positive given that uh, economies are going to remain in recession. And if 20 to 30% of copper consumed in China is to make product for re-export, that is something that uh, we need to be cautious about, I think, over the coming months. So worth keeping tabs on. Okay. Um, now, electric vehicles, so uh, we, we mentioned them briefly. Um, one thing that caught my eye the other day, Day was Germany. So, in the context of, of building back uh, green, that, that there's really enormous investment in, in, in Germany in a hydrogen network, equivalent to five nuclear power stations, apparently, with a view to uh, powering, presumably, fuel cell vehicles. Obviously, good news for uh, for, for platinum. Now, how, what's, the, what's the situation in, uh, in in America? Is everyone driving Teslas there now, or do the the longer distances mean that uh, there's potential? Uh, greater interest ultimately in, in, in fuel cell vehicles and uh, hydrogen power. Well, I, and just real quick, I, I, it's not an area I focus on too much, but I definitely am involved. I'm a, a rare case. I have panels in my house, I have an electric car, but very, we're very far behind Germany, but we have to say, I'd like to point out, US is just a little more cost effective, um, pointing out what's really value and what's, and to me, it's just a matter of time. That technology is gonna be here and it's gonna be cheaper and it's just a matter of time and governments can help it happen. and. People like me have made it happen, but it's well, way far behind. It's just a matter of time that we should all have solar panels in our house. We all should have electric cars, just like we have cable TV. 
I, I don't see that's what's going to stop that. In the next administration, it's a virtual guarantee. There'll be a much greater emphasis on greener energy if it switches to the other side. So there we go. That's part of the contentions of the election. But it's a matter of time. Just a question of when. I mean, like I remember as a kid when they started installing cables for cable TV. It's just going to be a solar everywhere. And that's one thing I'm big. I have a big bias towards is rooftop solar. I know it's 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 just the most cost effective because the structure is already there. It's just the infrastructure of setting up the storage and all that. That definitely means silver. Okay. Uh, well, um, as we're in America, election uh, in in November. I, I guess uh, have we moved from the personality to the uh, policy part of the debate yet? Uh, maybe not. But uh, maybe you could uh, give us some indication as as, as to how you think the different candidates stack up in terms of their economic fiscal policies and what each route means for the uh, the metals markets. I think the market started to price in a Biden administration to some extent, a greater extent than it was um, a little while ago, partly because of the decline in the polls. And it's virtually, it's very rare for a president to be reelected in such a, a uh, crisis, especially this one. And it's so contentious. So as I visited my parents in the Midwest recently, which is Trump territory, my father said, well, there's just not a viable candidate. So it's going to be unique. But if we get a Biden administration, expect more, much more demand for kind of the EV type metals. We mentioned cobalt, silver, silver, copper related. It's just going to happen. It's a question of time. Maybe a bit of bit in crude oil because the drill will end um, when, of the Trump administration. But one key thing, which is just notable for this, is one thing that's really unique about this administration. They've been paying the U.S. farmers to produce. That's why prices are being pressured. That will probably change. That's very rare. In the past, our government used to pay producers to not produce. So, but in terms of metals, it's going to be more the EV focus. The problem is we're overdue for a recession. Everybody knows it. We're overdue for a stock market correction. Everybody knows it. To me, I can't really get bullish copper and silver until we get past and get to near the nadar, the next stock market, bear market. And that's the way I'm looking for it. Because you just look at correlations the last 5, 10, 20 years, a 10-year basis. It's just... On an upward to the right basis of industrial metals versus the stock market. I hate to say it, but it's just the way it is. Most notably, if the U.S. stock market outperforming the world. So, And if we get a new administration, hopefully we'll get to finally get that weak dollar, which we need in metals, particularly, obviously, gold, but definitely copper. Yeah, so um, I was just going to ask, what, does either Canada have a particular effect, positive or negative, on, on, on the dollar? Yeah, um, I think you're going to see it's the dollar's increasing correlation to the U.S. stock market outperforming the world the last 10 years is a key thing to focus. So it's got a somewhat coincide with a, a weakness in U.S. equity market. Dollar weakness is much more Biden elected and dollar strength stock market weakness. You know, forget all the re regulations, just, you know, get her done. Trump administration will definitely be more bullish for the stock market and the dollar. OK, but so the Times um, this morning, Times of London. Uh, had a, a, a report about uh, Goldman's. Uh, Goldman analysts predicting that uh, the, the dollar uh, might lose its reserve currency status. Do you have any truck with that? Oh, it's, <laughs> I've been hearing that. For, I'm 55. I've been hearing that since I've, I've been a, a baby. And good luck with that one because, I, I, hey, I'd love it to see be gold, but I mean, just come on. Good luck with that one. I, the simple thing that Dennis Gardner used to say, well, U.S. has 11 aircraft um, carrier battle, battle groups. Boom. That's all you need to know. And then, of course, the most the deepest debt markets in the world. So that's the bottom line. But I think the key thing to remember there is the U.S. still has the highest yields in the world, the most potential for economic growth in terms of free, open discard economic economy that's not mired in like we have a communism system in, in China that's becoming increasingly dictatorial. We, I've lived in Europe for a year. We know what's happening in Europe. Just look on the broad basis, it's still, and yes, it's maybe I'm somewhat biased, but I've, 
see the world and I say, well, you come from another planet, which place is more likely to continue to do what they've been doing? That's the US. And what's continue to have problems with politics and things? Europe. And what's the problem with China? I have this view that China has peaked like similar to Japan in the Soviet Union did 30 years ago with a, a somewhat combination. Remember, we have a dictator who's increasingly consolidating power, no discourse, no open free markets, no free, free open capital. We know what happens in markets if you don't have free flow of capital. It just doesn't work. Okay. Uh, well, over to Robin. Uh, have, where, where do we stand in Europe? Are we peaked? Uh, will will the, uh, the, the new European bonds help us uh, help the European economy? I mean, just coming back to the dollar, yeah, I, I agree with Mike. I mean, I, I can't see the US dollar as a reserve currency being usurped uh, anytime soon because I've got a simple question. You know, if we didn't have the dollar, what would we have? So um, it begs the question, you know, until the Chinese yuan or uh, some other basket of, of currencies can, can fill the gap, we're going to have the, uh, the dollar as a reserve currency for the foreseeable future. Now, these EU bonds could be a game changer. You know, at last, Europe's got its act together. And if they uh, mean to carry on, as they've uh, suggested, follow through with a green agenda, then maybe for a long time, we will see some growth coming back to, uh, to Europe. But I wouldn't hold your breath. I mean, there's probably better potential elsewhere, i.e. North America, Asia. But I'm hopeful for Europe because it's been such a basket case for the last 20 years since the introduction of the euro that, you know, Europe's flatlined. But I don't think that can continue forever and ever. OK, but while, while we're in Europe, so we, we, we just talked about uh, the, uh, the the stories about the reserve, the reserve being as old as the hills. Well, the, the stories about the ring shutting down on the LME, uh, similar vintage too. Uh, and it never seems to happen. Well, COVID has shut it. Uh, an announcement went out uh, yesterday uh, that it's uh, probably going to be shut to the end of the year. And to compensate the uh, the ring dealers, uh, they're, they're now uh, fee rebates, which I guess is a good thing. But um, my question to you, uh, Robin, uh, have have we missed the ring? What uh, uh, has it um, has absence affected uh, trading volumes or, or, or price discovery even? Uh, my my gut feel is we probably haven't. Uh, it's not something that I like saying because personally, I love taking visitors to the floor, the only one that exists now in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's a wonderful experience for anybody that's read about the ring but not visited, they should. So from a personal point of view, call it selfish, but um, long live the ring. And uh, I would say for the last 20 years, journalists have always rang me up ahead of LME week and said, Robin, is the, is the ring closing? And I said, no, it's not because that's what users want to continue seeing is floor trading, the on-screen market and the telephone market. You know, all of those three mediums of trading have a useful function, I would say. So I would hate to see the ring closing and um, in all honesty, you know, an insubstantial amount of volume now goes to the floor compared to um, other um, times of the day. So it would be sad, but um, can we replicate that on the screen? We potentially could, but, you know, we've seen the ring come into its own when there's been uh, disasters, uh, as we've seen 
in the past where it's useful to have a floor to be able to transact. It's not essential, but I think it, um, to me, makes sense as a sort of a disaster recovery centre. I know there's a, a, a disaster recovery centre outside of London where the ring has been replicated, but I would like to see the floor continue, but purely personal reasons, no other reason. Can I can I just expand on that? I started in the Chicago Board of Trade in the 80s, and I remember day one thinking this is going to be antiquated. It, it is. It's an antiquated technology. They're riding horses. It's a better way to do technology. I completely agree with you, Rob, but I missed that. It was so such the best way to get information. And I believe me, when you're in the pits, you have an edge compared to anybody outside because you can just feel it. I remember being in a sense of volume which way markets are going to go. This makes it more even space for everybody. I love the LME, been there many times, but I look at it like it's the old trading cards in the trading pits. Remember the life exchange, it, it, it went like that and trading and all those products yeah. is fine. It's just, unfortunately, it's old school. And I look at the New York Stock Exchange, been down there many times. It's shifted to a marketing role, which is great. But for actual trading, push a button electronically, it's done. You don't need a guide with an out trade risk. It's just, that's old. Yeah, I, I guess um, the, um, my, my view, I, I'd be really sorry to see it go as well. I think it performs a, a, a great service, probably the, the most efficient way to uh, discover uh, prices in the peculiar spreads that the uh, enemy has. So let's hope that COVID is, is, is brought out under control and, and, and the ring comes back. Right, well, on that note, let's open to a Q&A with uh, our audience. Uh, Jake, can you help us out here? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, for the insights, guys. Some really, really fantastic points. Uh, we've got some really interesting questions that have been submitted by the audience. Um, I'm going to open up with one from Diana. Um, a miner said to me yesterday that metals are set for a new super cycle with prices to rise for the next four to five years on government post-pandemic stimulus that will boost demand while supply will remain inelastic and that silver will be the star performer. Would the panel have any comment? Is super cycle too strong a term? Mike, I can see a finger going in the air already. Good luck with that one. Government's fiscal stimulus <laughs> promoting a long-term bid in, in, in uh and these big, deep, deep markets, just good luck with that one. That's all I got to say is you need organic demand pull forces, higher bond yields. You need expanding economies and demand pull. You need higher crude oil, typically. You need the demand pull. That's not going to come from government stimulus. The government needs to get out of the way and let, her get, let markets get her done. And that's not happening. Governments right now are just saving markets. So, amen. Good luck with that one. At some point, we're going to get a super cycle. But I think it's happening in gold and precious. But industrials, trend's still down. Interesting, interesting stuff. Jens, any other comment there, or should I uh, raise another question? Go on, Robin. Yeah, uh, uh, just to say, you know, if you take a five, ten-year view, then there will be an upcycle. I wouldn't describe it as a super cycle because China's been unique in the period 2000, 2010, as China was booming. I don't see that being replicated as China became the factory of the world. But I do see an up cycle because all bear, bear cycles come to an end and the mining industry is boom and bust. We've had the bust or we're going through the bust. There will be a boom. And um, these low prices means inevitable that we get the next boom because we're not going to get new supply being funded. And as demand 
increases because of the green agenda, EVs, energy storage, the whole mobility picture. That all to me suggests a metals intensive outlook. But where is the supply to meet that? So I'm projecting quite sizable deficits based on the fact that nobody really is announcing project go ahead. So we're going to get some sizable deficits in the likes of nickel and copper, lithium, cobalt, vanadium, you name it, because today's low prices means lack of supply in five, 10 years time. Interesting stuff. Brilliant. Now, Jens, you, you covered uh, Latin America earlier on a little bit, but I wonder if there's any more of uh, you know, any more insight you can share on Latin American metals and mining after COVID-19. Anything else to add on that side? I'll go ahead. Um, I mean, obviously, that's a focus of um, the industry, you know, with um, 40% of copper supply coming from Chile, Peru, Mexico. It's um, an important um, location. I think at the peak of COVID, if we can call it the peak, about 30% of um, supply was knocked out on a temporary basis with some of the big mines in Chile being locked down. They're slowly coming out of lockdown and um, you will see supply getting normalized. But I think, you know, if you take a long term view, we need the investment. Cadelco have got uh, huge plans to bring on more supply, but where will they get the funding? Will capital markets be friendly towards Cadelco, to give an example, in bringing on that much needed supply? If you look at Cadelco's operations, those mines are becoming very much deep, lower grade, lack of water supplies, etc., etc. So this is what worries me. As a geologist, I understand the supply side a lot better than anything else. And it really does worry me taking that medium to longer term view. Interesting. Interesting, Robin. Thanks for the thanks for the insight there. Mike, one for you, I think. Um, outlook for gold for the rest of the year. I've got a broken record. I have to stick with a broken record. Let's focus on the short term first. At yeah. about 22% above its 52-week average, it's the most overbought since the, the peak in 2011, so you have to be careful. So I'm looking for it to consolidate around 2000 for a while. It's made highs in virtually every other planet, currency on the planet. So dollars is catching up in terms of the dollar. But with this election, in particular, if we get a weak dollar, gold's going to go up. And the bottom line for gold is this done deal or fate to complete nature of global central bank liquidity providing. When do we expect that to end? I don't see an end. I don't see an end in sight. So I think gold's going to continue to rally, particularly when the U.S. stock market enters a bear market. I didn't say if. At some point, it has to. It always has. If it's entering a bear market, I don't think gold will peak until near the nadar of the next equity bear market because all those mon all that money is starting to flow towards gold. I'm sensing it here. I have people telling me they're doing that. And that would be a key catalyst for negative U.S. interest rates, which everybody says no to. But wait till you get a stock bear market and see how things feel. And I think it's just a matter of time. Maybe it's not this year. Maybe it's not my lifetime, but there will be. And that to me is when about when gold was going to peak. So I still see it going a long way. It's simple, just a simple analysis compared to the last crisis. Gold rallied three times from its lows about that to this peak around 1900. That's around 4,500 uh, 4, in the next few years. That's just simple analysis. Then you look at just central banks. I mean, as far as central bank ownership of debt and central bank balance sheets, it's near 50%. Now that's the top four. Trends come clearly from the lower left to the upper right. 
can we talk about iron ore and the outlook for, for iron ore moving forward? Um, I'm not sure who'd like to jump in with that one, anyone at all? Yeah, I can uh, perhaps say a few words. Uh, you know, I think you can sort of liken iron ore to copper. Uh, you know, it's a macro-driven commodity. China demand has soared as fiscal stimulus has basically seen the demand for steel and therefore iron ore. You've had uh, ongoing supply constraints for a number of reasons, again, akin to what we've seen in the copper market. So, um, yeah, I think the comparisons uh, are worth making between copper and iron ore. Going forward, I think if the price continues to move higher, we're around, what, 107, 108 um, dollars uh, a tonne. If we see the price moving above 110, I think you see some of the majors looking to bring on more supply. So longer term, more supply uh, or better supply response to prices being above $100 a tonne should cap the price going forward. But um, I don't see a collapse in prices for the reasons that we've outlined over the last um, 45 minutes or so. Brilliant. Excellent. That wraps up the Q&A, Jens. Thank you so much for your time and attendees. Thank you so much for coming along, giving out part of your, your Wednesday afternoon or morning, depending on where you are, to, to listen in. Like I said, please do keep an eye open for the uh, the follow-up uh, email. It'd be great to get your comment and feedback. And there's uh, Robin's notification to go and check out rbmc.world to stay up to date with, uh, with, with his alternative market analysis. So thank you all very much for joining us and uh, see you again soon. Thanks. Thank you very much. So that's it for today. As always, please do get in touch if you feel like you've got something different to say and you'd like to come on the podcast as a future guest. If you've also got any themes, topics, or people you'd like us to interview in future episodes, again, let me know. My email address is jake at chai-uk.com. If you enjoyed Time for Chai, I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Today's podcast was produced by Alejandro Giron of Giron & Co. Podcasting Services. Special thanks to my colleagues Stephen Butler, Chris Evans and Marcus Dixon. It was written and hosted by myself, Jake Jacobs. Have a great week. See you next time.